Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. We're heading towards the controversial year of 1619 by analyzing the prior financial challenges and realities faced by a daring and ambitious English enterprise. In 1606, British King James I granted the Virginia Company of London a charter. A year later, this privately funded joint stock company established the first permanent English colony in North America at Jamestown in the colony of Virginia. Historian Misha Ewan recounts the fascinating early history of the Virginia Company and its initial investors. The Virginia Company is a joint stock company and it's trying to garner interest in lots of different ways. So they commission preachers to preach in church and spread the word about this Christian mission and the ideas that they have to convert the indigenous population to Christianity. And they're also seeking donations in church. They're also spreading the word through Parliament and the court and the inns of court as well. So within the city of London and the kind of wider London area in the palaces and the halls of Westminster, they're trying to seek sort of interest and investment and patronage. And I think also one of the ways that they're trying to kind of galvanize interest is also by bringing back colonial goods, new goods from North America, and also the indigenous peoples of North America who bring back as captives and also guests to show the people of England that these are the opportunities that will be waiting for us there and to learn from them as well about the wealth of natural resources and what the inhabitants of North America are like and what the geography of North America is like. So I should caveat everything I'm going to say now with the fact that before 1618, none of the company's own records have survived. So we don't have any of the company minutes, but we can gather a lot from what's going on in the company from the printed promotional material that it produces and also the kind of letters and correspondence of people who are involved. So there are different means and sort of ways that they're doing this. And some of this kind of evidence has survived. We can learn a lot from the different messages that they're promoting that this is both about religion and piety, but it is also about profit and trade. And I think they don't see those two things as being in conflict. In fact, they actually think that those things are harmonious and actually you should have both for successful colonization. The men that went to Jamestown were given very clear instructions. They were to find a site that was 100 miles up a navigable river. And one of the reasons for this was that they believed that they would be able to go in search of the Northwest Passage, but they also wanted to find a site that they could easily defend against any potential Spanish attack. And I think going to the site in person, which I've done a couple of times now, really gave me a much better sense as a historian of why that place would have appealed to them. It sits on this expansive river. You can kind of see in all directions. It's wooded. They have access to water. It was rich in animal and plant life. And as far as they're aware at this point, there is a local potentially friendly indigenous population that they believe they'll be able to establish trading relationships with. And of course, this part of North America, not exactly the Chesapeake, but the Carolina Banks, that is somewhere that they have been before. They have experience of it. And even since the failed Roanoke colony, there have been other exploratory ventures to the Chesapeake. 
So there's some familiarity when they happen upon Jamestown, but I think there is also a matter of chance in these things. And I think it's interesting now to wonder whether their fortification of Jamestown, did they see that as permanent or did they think that maybe they might go in search of a site elsewhere? Because they do continue to explore the surrounding area, going to the area where Richmond is today, for instance. And although James Fort remains the centre of the Jamestown colony, by the 1620s, households and plantations have spread out into the area more widely. But it turns out that actually it's not the best site for them because the water is brackish and it makes the men very ill and there are all sorts of other issues that they run into. And these are men who are trained men, you know, navigators, sailors, soldiers. So I think there's a sense that they themselves will use their own experience to be able to identify the best possible place based on the instructions that they're given by the council in London. And that's what happens. The first priority for them was to fortify. They are worried about a foreign attack. But they're also worried about protecting themselves against any potentially hostile local indigenous population as well. And I guess the second thing that they would be worried about is supplies. They would have brought supplies with them, but they would know that those supplies were going to run out at some point and they would have to think about how they were going to get food stuff. And I think looking at the group of men that were in that first group, that group of 104 men and boys who arrived at Jamestown, I think gives a sense of their ideas about what would make a successful colony. So they have labourers, men who I guess they envisaged would plant and produce food and build and fortify as well, but they have a blacksmith. They have a tailor, there's a mason, there are several carpenters, and you know, there's a preacher as well who's there to look after the godly health of the colonists. So I think that kind of gives a sense of they did expect that once they had done those kind of basic things that they could look to expand their industry there. But trade would also be a crucial part of that, as well as producing their own colonial goods like tobacco and vines for wine and the silk industry and all these other ideas that they have that met with mixed success. If we look at the number of investors and the amount of capital that they pour into the venture, which is in the many thousands, which is not enough, quite frankly, I think we know that this is a very expensive endeavour. And some of the earlier printed material, which does survive, shows that they are quickly realising that they aren't sending colonists with enough food and with enough supplies because things are actually much more difficult than they anticipate. So we see them drawing up lists of ideal roster of equipment and tools that people should take with them so that they can be more self-sufficient. And this is different kinds of farming and agricultural equipment and things that you would need to build, hammers and nails and that kind of thing. But quickly, as it dawns on the company that investor capital will not be enough, they do look to other ways to raise investment from a broader public of people in England. And that involves everything from charitable donations and one-off payments to the company and loans, but also things like the company lotteries, which actually proved to be remarkably profitable for the Virginia company. I think they probably did not envisage the first group of 100 men would all perish as quickly as they did. Supplies of further labourers would be required, but hundreds of people go to the colony in those first few years. And that does require a huge amount of capital. And it's clear that some of that money is coming from the company, but I'm sure that some of those people were also probably supplying themselves as well and then paying for their own passage. 
it's an expensive endeavour and investors in England don't see any return on that, which is why some of them do begin to default on their payments because they think maybe the company's swindling them out of the money because they can't imagine where it's going. And their response is, this is going to be more costly than we imagined. And actually, we're going to need to carry on investing before we see any returns. And that might take some time. There are no quick wins here. They don't find gold. They aren't successful producing any desirable commodities immediately. That happens several years down the line. So at this point, it's this kind of black hole that they are pouring this capital into, and it is not offering any returns to the investors. The company is granted permission in 1612 to start holding lotteries as a way to generate capital for the colonial venture. It first starts off holding these lotteries in London. They have a few different sites that they use. And we know that these spaces are built from the ground up, these so-called lottery houses, and they're decorated. And there are accounts of people in the company going around to inspect them and see how the work is coming along. But the first lotteries in London are not successful. They have to keep pushing back the dates because enough people are not buying the tickets. And they think that maybe this is because it's a little bit too expensive for most ordinary people that live in the city. So a few years later, they start rolling out these lotteries in other cities instead. And they do a couple of things. They reduce the price of the ticket. So you can now buy a ticket for 12 pence or one shilling, which is fairly affordable for most people. And they also make the drawing of the lots more immediate. So beforehand, you bought your ticket and you had to wait around for a few days before you found out whether or not you'd won anything. This time round, they take the lotteries to towns around England. So everywhere from Manchester in the northwest, all the way down to places like Bristol and Gloucester in the southwest of the country. And they time them to coincide with different events and festivities. So when the lottery goes to Chester, for example, it coincides with the city's midsummer celebrations. So it's a time of the year when people are already flooding into the city for trade and entertainment. And by having the lottery there at that time, they hope that they can exploit this captive audience. And this new model of these lotteries that travel around are much more successful. And we know from court records of incidents when things go wrong at the lotteries that people of much lower social class, the labouring poor, were buying tickets. And one way that they were doing this was by spreading the cost of ticket amongst themselves. So very much like how people who bought shares in the company might do that. So if a shilling for a ticket was too much, they maybe chipped in, you know, one pence each. And there's one account in Wells, which is a town in the southwest of England of the people taking their winnings to the pub after and buying beer and cake. So it just gives you a sense of the way that people who didn't have very much were able to, in their own way, invest in the colonial project. And I think it's significant because it generates a huge amount of money for the company, around £29,000, which was a significant amount of money. But I think it's also interesting when we're thinking about how did ordinary people contribute to this project and how did they become aware of it as well? If they hadn't already heard about it in church through a sermon or heard a ballad about the new world, maybe they first encountered it because one of the lotteries came to their town or village. And for me, that's just a really sort of intriguing idea. Next time, we continue our expose on the colony of Jamestown. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. Thank you.
The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.